Hello out there. Happy holidays. Welcome back to Check the Score. So we're heading into a new year, finally, and I'm feeling a little optimistic. I'm also feeling very enthusiastic about sharing my conversation with Dave Porter, the composer of score music for the expanded Breaking Bad universe, which includes the original series, the subsequent prequel series Better Call Saul, and the Breaking Bad movie El Camino. We got into all of it in this talk. Now, if you're tuning into this, then there's a good chance you're a Breaking Bad head just like me, and therefore well acquainted with Porter's music to what is unquestionably in the pantheon of all-time television dramas. By the time Better Call Saul reaches its conclusion sometime next year, we hope, Porter will have provided the musical color and texture to a story almost 15 years in the telling. And that's a lot of music to a lot of episodes. So we had a lot to talk about. Among the many lures of Breaking Bad is that a whole world was created. I can't think of another extended viewing experience where I felt so settled, while being unsettled, within its contours. Porter had so much to do with that palpability. It felt like every time something was going down in that Albuquerque underworld, his metallic atmosphere with southwestern rust was hovering. As the series continued, and the consequence of Walt and Jesse's meth enterprise expanded, so too did the presence of Porter's music. I had always appreciated his cleverly tweaked versions of the main theme at the end of many episodes, but somewhere along the line, his score became more, and did more, imprinting each pulse-pounding sequence and pocket of character reckoning. As anybody who has followed along through Breaking Bad and Into Better Call Saul will tell you, Porter's score was brilliantly counterbalanced by all of the unusually great source music chosen by longtime collaborator, music supervisor Thomas Gulovich. What's so cool is that this synergistic combination of music has just recently seen a vinyl release on the soundtrack to El Camino. I talk with Porter about that collaboration and how the two have played off one another's selections through the course of Breaking Bad and Saul. The immersiveness of the Breaking Bad viewing experience and the kind of familiarity that develops with its characters and environments is hard to describe, except to another Breaking Bad enthusiast. That's when the quoting and impersonations of characters are brought out, along with cases made for best episodes, and most recently, theories of what will become of Kim and Nacho in the final season of Better Call Saul. This was kind of the dynamic of the conversation I had with Porter. Not only is he the composer of these shows, but he's also a huge fan. The Breaking Bad heads should love it, but even if you're not a diehard, you'll learn a lot about one of the great musical artists for film and TV of our time. One of my favorite composers, and someone who has certainly made his mark on a show that has made its mark on many. You got your beard going on, I see. Yes, it's, uh, it's been a long time since I've been shorn. <laughs> in any respect it suits you it suits you it's good uh it's an experiment we'll see if, we'll see if it lasts when the right. day comes that i actually have to see people in person are you all remote right now still or what's oh yeah uh and in fact i haven't been working very much because uh when especially in tv and film production this music comes last as you may know yes so I was working for a while in the spring after production had stopped because I was catching up with the episodes that had been shot. 
But now, even though they are back in production, I haven't seen very much yet and won't until, um, you know, early next year. Right. So it's been pretty quiet for me. You're talking about Saw, the final season of Saw, yes? Actually, I'm not. Uh, oh. Uh, Saw is still in the writer's room. Oh, right, yeah. To the best of my knowledge, I'm a little out of the loop because I haven't talked to those folks in a while. But yeah, they are, they do intend to go into production 2021 is my understanding. Okay. But my other two shows that I've been on for a while, uh, The Blacklist for NBC is back shooting and also Hightown, which is my uh, drug drama for stars that uh, premiered last year. They're back in shooting also. So looking forward to some work coming up my way pretty soon. I saw ads for that, Hightown, and that rings a bell. Yeah, I'm sure they'll show the first season again soon, you know, and sort of gearing up for whenever we come back with the second season. You should check it out. It's a great show. It's good fun. It's uh, Monica Raymond and uh, James Badge Dale. Oh, James Badge Dale. Love that guy. Yeah, he yeah. was terrific, you know. He was in a show called Rubicon, which I don't know if you've ever seen. But no. Early days of AMC networks, when Breaking Bad was pretty new, it was, it was their sh next show. And it was, uh, actually, I loved it. I was sorry it didn't keep going, but it just didn't catch an audience, I guess. But it was fantastic. And even the one season is well worth watching, if you can find it. And that was like early AMC, basically? Very early, yeah. I mean, I think probably it was their third or fourth show after Mad Men and Breaking Bad and... I got to check that out because I love James Badgetail. He uh, did you ever see that movie Donnie Brook? Yep. That was that was a wild one. <laughs> well, definitely. <laughs> I, for for all the Breaking Bad people, that, yes. that fits right in. Yep. Yep. Did your stars relationship start with Flesh and Bone or was it earlier than that? Uh, you know, I think this came about just through the ether. You know, I, I have worked for stars before, uh, on that show, Flesh and Bone, which I did with Moira Wally Beckett, who was a Breaking Bad producer and writer. Um, so that's how obviously I came upon that original stars thing, but this just came about, I think they were, they were looking for someone and you know, when it comes to drug dramas, yeah, <laughs> somehow my phone guy. keeps ringing. <laughs> <laughs> call, call Dave Porter that's right. immediately. So what are you up to these days besides the music making? I mean, is it, are you in full dad and husband mode right now? I actually am. Uh, and I, and there's definitely a part of me that hears uh, from my, my friends and colleagues who work in my world who are childless and running around pursuing their passion projects and writing screenplays and writing symphonies and things that, you know, I would have love to have had the time to do but to be totally honest i i didn't even realize it but i needed a break yeah i have been burning 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 for years and uh, just because you know when you work for yourself as all composers do it's very hard to turn the faucet off once it starts going when you're so blessed to have the work uh because you just never know when it's gonna stop or when it's just gonna not come so so, you know, I've been blessed with a lot of wonderful opportunities and it's been hard to not take them. Uh, so I've been super busy and, and that's been great. But I didn't quite realize, I think, creatively how much, uh, how much I had been burnt out and just closing the door to the studio. And, uh, and that's been a great mental break. Uh, we'll see <laughs> how rusty I am when I have to get back to it. <laughs> Um, it's not like you can ease back into it. Right. So I, yeah. I, I'm, I am going to have to mentally prepare a little, I think, for next year, or otherwise it's just going to be too hard to, to jump right back into it. 
But has this last year offered you kind of a time to reflect a little on things that you have done that you maybe didn't get the opportunity to do before because you were just kind of like head down going at it? Do you have any perspective on, you know, you're mentioning Saw, like what's coming up in the next season and the final season? And does this time allow you to step back and kind of reflect or is it something that you're going to do when it's all over? Yeah, I think I've done a little reflecting about it. I mean, mostly to be honest, you know, seeing how how tough these times are. It's been super, super hard and hard to see. And, I, you know, I keep thinking honestly to myself, if this had been the year, for example, that I had just moved to L.A. from New York, I wouldn't have made it. Mm-hmm. There's no way I would have been able to hang out through this period as a young assistant or any of that because there just isn't the work right now. It's, it's not there. And so I really feel for, for that generation coming up behind me who's got this period of total uncertainty. It's, it's hard enough to hang it out. And to be honest, I've always said that 80% of success in the film and TV world is just persistence and being able to, to manage that persistence, be able to hang in there until you, you develop your skills enough and your connections and your world enough to be able to find an avenue into consistent work. And, uh, you know, for, uh, for a whole world of people um, who are just trying to do that right now, it's, it's got to be super hard. So I've been thinking about that a lot. And also, you know, a chance to do a lot more talking with folks because I haven't been working as much like, like talking with you today. It's, it, that has definitely also increased just because I've been thinking about it so much. And certainly you mentioned the Breaking Bad universe and Better Call Saul, you know, wrapping up the film, El Camino, and talking about the the vinyl release that just came out and thinking about this last season of Better Call Saul, which we know will be the, the end and presumably the end of the entire Gilligan sphere in terms of Breaking Bad, at least. It is, it's, it's hard to think about it. And it is hard to, I think, even wrap my head around because it has been that tentpole uh, of my creative universe and certainly my professional universe for like 12, 13, 14 years now, whatever it's been. Uh, But I I owe so much to not only Vince, but of course, all the people and producers and folks that I work with on those shows. And we've been family for a long time. So it is, it's absolutely the right time. And it's, uh, I'm excited for it. And I'm excited for being pushed creatively to go out big and leave it all in the tail. There is that beauty. And I remember this from the last season of Breaking Bad when I thought that that was going to be the end, right? (laughs) Of this storytelling, I just remember, well, I mean, there is a freedom in being able to just know that there's no reason to hold anything back and just leave it all on the table and do everything you can to make it as as big an exclamation point as you can. And and we're, I can feel the revving up of that for Saul and that, that is definitely exciting and of course also, you know, a bit wistful.
Yeah, the wist- yeah, the wistful part. I'm experiencing that too, knowing that you know it's that one last stretch, and and it seems like a lot has to be resolved in this last. I guess it's like 13 episodes they're planning on. That was my understanding. Yeah, we all thought this too, myself included, when we came to the last season of Breaking Bad. I, you know, how are they possibly gonna resolve all of this in the in the last? But I, I have full faith. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I have no doubt that it will be brought home well and satisfy all the fans. I'm so curious to know, obviously, like everybody else, what happens to Kim. And now it's like, what happens to Nacho? I mean, that last, oh man, that last episode of season five of Saul, I think that kind of came the closest to me to the energy level of some of the more climactic moments of Breaking Bad. You know, my heart was beating so hard at the yes. end of that episode. And yeah. to see Lalo's, the look on Lalo's face as he's walking away with that limp, it's like, oh, no, Nacho's in trouble. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's one of the less talked about features of Better Call Saul. I think to their great credit and to Michael Mando's great credit, you know, they've created this very layered character over the years in, in Nacho uh, who we root for, totally. even though even though you know there's there's very little to really like about him if you think about it. But but you do. That's the irony. Yeah. Yeah. yeah of yeah. course. Uh, and and I think I think folks didn't realize, at least including myself, because I get to watch this show like a fan too. And I think we didn't realize how much we cared about that character until the end of last season. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if he plays a, a big role in that final season and, and, and getting things to where they are. Yeah, there's a lot of anticipation. And I guess, I guess now, under normal circumstances, they probably would have been in production, I would imagine. Uh, who knows? I mean, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul fans are used to the reality that the folks uh, you know, that I work for on these shows, they're not cutting corners ever. No. And so it just takes time. Yeah. And so they're going to take the time, pandemic or no pandemic, they always have, uh, and far more important to them, even though it's frustrating, I know, to, to our, our fans, uh, is getting it right and crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's. And they, that has always been, without fail, their, their number one priority to their great credit. Uh, and it's, it's always proved worth it, and I'm sure it will this time too. Well, so you're waiting like everybody else. I mean, I guess... You've said before that you don't really write to scripts, right? I mean, uh, no. and, and are they even bothering showing you any of the writing yet or no? It's- no, because, because they know it's not, uh, it's not crucial for me to have them. Obviously, they keep those scripts very much on lockdown. And so anyone that doesn't need to see them isn't going to see them. And I, I prefer not to, you know, in the way that I work, especially on those shows, because they spend so much time on them. And when I get to see them, they are largely finished. I like to sit down and watch them not knowing what's going to happen, just like a fan, which I am. Uh, and, and that's a blessing for me because nearly everything is finished when I get to sit down and watch these episodes for the first time. Uh, and that helps me react as a fan and be surprised or frightened or emotional in all the ways that, that, that everyone is going to be, uh, which really helps me. I think, come into it with a clear head, not with any preconceived ideas about what a scene should have looked like or felt like. And, and maybe, you know, this may be supposition, but, you know, come into the room 
with the rest of our team that has lived with it for such a long time with a fresh and new perspective and fresh eyes. And it's, it's certainly not that I'm lazy and don't want to read the scripts or that they're not amazing to read because they, they truly are. Uh, and I often read them after the fact, just for my own joy and, and edification. But, I, you know, in terms of how I work, I actually find it better for me creatively to, to come into a cold. mentioned this time that you're able to talk more about things and kind of discuss things. I've noticed that you seem to enjoy talking about your process. There's some artists and some musicians that kind of would rather just let people interpret their work and draw from the music what they will. You seem to really value discussing it. Does discussing the work and discussing the process help you kind of form your ideas about it? Or what do you get from discussing your process as it relates to the process itself? That's a great question. It really is. And I, I, I let me answer that in sort of two parts. I think that part of it is, as you say, um, talking about it helps me understand it in something that probably isn't understandable, right? There is some thing, right? Some creative spark or energy that happens when making music or whatever it is that you're doing that's creative that we're always trying to capture and understand, right? And I think through talking about it, it's partially me working through my own understanding of how it is so I can put myself in the best position to be in that creative headspace when I need to be. When you're getting paid to make things that are creative, that's the rub, it's not like you can just do this whenever. You have to be able to do it on command. And that's not easy. And, and my creative process is always evolving in some sense too. So it helps me remember the ways that things have worked for me in the past and think about ways in which things might work for me in the future and discovering new things. I'm always in search of new things, instruments or uh, other people's work outside of music. Uh, the writers or the actors are making decisions that I'm drawing on as a creative spark. I'm always looking for that stuff that's going to help drive whatever it is that I'm trying to do. And then I'd say the second part to answering that question is that I think it's a lot more valuable to talk about creative process in this sense when you are working on a collaborative project, like a TV show or a film. If I was working on a, an album on my own, for example, I'm not sure that A, I'd want to, or B, it would be that instructive to talk about my creative process. Because as you point out, it might color people's perception in, in sort of the same way about reading a script in advance, right? It would, it would focus people's creative thought process when they are listening back to something in a very specific way that doesn't allow them the freedom to interpret it the way they might want to. Whereas, for what I do, 
professionally in my career as a film and television composer is very much a collaborative thing. And I never look at what I do uh, certainly as some expression personally of my own. There's a little bit of me in everything I do that's inevitable and that's a good thing. But by far and away, my job and my goal is to help tell someone else's story, to help complement in whatever way I can this film or TV show or whatever it is that I'm working on in a way that is for the better goal creatively of the whole project, not for my music per se. So in that way, I think learning about that or talking about that, and I'm always learning how to do that better, uh, is, is part of the specific skill set for composing for film and TV. It sounds like in talking about it, there's some things that start gestating and some seeds are planted that show up in your music writing that might not even be conscious. It's just something that by the time you're actually writing music, the, the talking about your approach or talking about all the characters or talking about how you collaborate with all the people involved might somehow color or impact your actual writing, even if it's not something that's direct. I can absolutely see that happening. And, and, and what it does, too, is it, is it tends to be conversations that are bigger picture. Right there, there, and that's a huge part of the job too. But it's easy to lose as a film composer. You're down in the trenches. You're working on a specific episode and a specific moment that you really want to get right in that specific moment. But it is, of course, also part of a much larger picture over a whole film or a whole TV series, which could last years. And keeping that perspective for me, and and talking about how any moment fits into the grander scheme of things is important because I think one of the most powerful roles that uh, score in particular can bring to a film or TV show is that kind of overarching connection between moments, between episodes, between seasons, uh, particularly on a TV show because directors come and go, writers change, even the editors are different from episode to episode, but the composer is one of the few links that's connecting all the episodes together. Uh, and I think when, when you get it right, that's a, a really powerful tool in a composer's toolbox. You've been able to maintain this cohesion of sound and tone throughout, even though the writing has changed and instrumentation has changed and the music itself has evolved over the course of this whole story. But it's keeping you locked into this world. And it sounds like that process for you is an aid to that cohesion. That's one of the most incredible parts of this story is the way you've been able to keep that tone throughout it. Well, thank you, first of all. I, I don't want to take that much credit. I mean, I think that I'm, I'm following the lead. I'm following the creative decisions that get made before me. Uh, I'm so lucky to have them in front of me and to follow those cues. And of course, you know, a huge part of this is the discussions. It is getting into the room 
and talking not just about music. It's very rarely, honestly, a discussion of strings or oboes, right? I mean, we're talking about story. We're talking about the longer-term goals of the story and the short-term goals of the story and how music can help tell that story. And, and especially in a show as emotionally and psychologically complex uh, as a Breaking Bad or a Better Call Saul, and talking about how things may change in the future. Actually, that's one of the things I worry about most in the post-coronavirus world, is that now, because there's so much pressure on productions to move fast, I fear the loss of that getting everybody in the room and talking about music for, for these shows. But just moving ahead in a, into other shows and new showrunners in the future, I, I, hope that, uh, I hope that the importance of that doesn't get lost. Well, it sounds like you know this discussion that you have with the creators was something that was really immediate in the making of El Camino because uh, Vince Gilligan was in the room with you, is that correct, as you were writing? Yeah, the beauty of, of working on, on El Camino was that it's a film, and we approached it very, very much like a feature film, and not in the same way that we do the TV shows. We strove to take advantage of the advantages of working on a film. The biggest one of that is just simply time. Uh, with so much to accomplish on a TV show and a train that is just rolling episode after episode that you've got to get out the door, you just don't have that luxury. But on, on the movie, there was a lot more time. And Vince had taken a moment aside from Better Call Saul. And so, you know, I got to spend a lot more time than I normally do with, with Vince Gilligan on El Camino. Uh, and I love that. Uh, and uh, thankfully, we also have you know a decade-long relationship of, of trust and, and working together. And so uh, it was great to be able to use that time and to have him be more hands-on with me, have him sit right here behind me and show him options and be able to manifest his thoughts about things in real time sometimes in the room and say, hey, was this kind of what you were imagining? Uh, so all those things were, were super great and, and super helpful. And I, and I do think they showed in the polish that we were able to achieve in the score to El Camino. Can you point to any moments that showed up in, in the movie that you and Vince kind of, I don't know, arrived at in a truly collaborative way? Or, or was it all like that? There were scenes that were, you know, the path towards the right answer was, was more clear than others. And I think the biggest example of that is the, is the very final scene of the film, which we spent the most time on, even though it ended up being the most simple musically. It wasn't always that way. We tried all kinds of things from a big sweeping Hollywood ending to more options that were more dour than what the final version ended up being. And I think we had to try together all of those things to come to the best answer, which was the right answer for the film, I think, e even though it, it's musically pretty spare, is that what the film needed was an answer that was 99% ambiguous mm. and 1% hopeful.
that's ultimately, to me, where it ended up. And Vince, as we kept watching it, you know, and not only Vince, but a lot of us kept referencing this amazing thing that, to me, Aaron Paul was just so perfect at, which is just this, the tiniest little lift of one corner of his mouth in hope. I mean, the most subtle possible thing while he still looks absolutely beaten and battered for all the things that he's gone through. Uh, And you're certainly not forgetting any of that. But there is that just that tiniest little spark in there. Uh, And I think anything musically that overplayed that moment ruined his performance of that because it overshadowed it. So, So in the end, it was the most breaking bad answer possible, which is that we left how you feel at the end as much as possible up to the viewer. And in fact, when it came time for that special little Aaron Paul moment at the end, the music is gone completely. And it's just absolute silence. So that we're very sure um, that I'm not coloring that moment in any way or guiding our audience in any way to feel any certain way. Uh, We want you to pick up on that or not as you may. I was going to mention that little smile, that hint of a smile at the end as he's driving to his future in Alaska. And I, I, I'm so happy with the way that last cue worked out because it was, there's a poignance to it and there's a, a meditation kind of to it. And you juxtapose that with the opening scene of this final chapter where he's driving off in the El Camino, you know, yelling in elation And that's a whole other different emotion that he's experienced, this relief and just absolute excitement to be free from his captivity. And then you come to the end of that and to see that bookend where he's also driving in a different car now, and he's got that little smile on his face, which, you know, we all love Jesse. All the people that follow this show and this story, there's a big place in our hearts for Jesse, right? And I think... What led to El Camino, if I may be so bold to suggest, is that we didn't know what happened to him at the end of Breaking Bad. We just see him escaping. And then to have it kind of end up like that with that scene where we think there might be some closure to this part of Jesse's life and there might be a future where he can find some peace was just so important. And I thought that that cue really struck that chord so well. Oh, thank you very much. Again, very much a collaborative process, but that is certainly one of the things we talked about and and just the sheer cacophony of how Breaking Bad ends and the film El Camino begins, of course, because it picks up right at the same spot, juxtaposed with uh, not so much certainty, but at least freedom to hope, even to have the luxury of hope, which he hadn't had in so long and and he's such the such the moral fiber, as you yes. say, of the original series, Breaking Bad, um, that I do, I do agree with you. I think that that is part of what drove fans to want to see a continuation of his story and, and what I, I would assume ultimately was gnawing at Vince to complete that part of the story. Even though it would have been really inappropriate to have it be part of Breaking Bad itself, because without question, you know, Breaking Bad is the story of Walter White from start to finish. Absolutely.
soundtrack, the record, I have so many questions about it, but I, I, I just wanted to give you my impression first. I guess during this time when we're waiting for the, the final season of Saul and maybe rewatching like I have done old episodes and old seasons, I, I guess what's so cool about it, the record aspect of it, I think it has something to do with just having a souvenir from a part of your life that you experience. I mean, we're not just watching a show in a vacuum, but we're watching a show as it relates to whatever period of life that we're in. And, it, and there's an association, there's a connection there, especially when this story has been going on for over a decade. There's so much of real life that corresponds to the actual viewing of these episodes and seasons. And I think when a record comes out, it's a way to kind of keep that memory in our minds and something we can revisit. And the album itself, I mean, a couple of things occurred to me when I was listening to it. One is that movie soundtracks that have been released, often the majority of it is score music or the majority of it is source music. But in this case, it's really kind of split down the middle. It seems rare that you have that kind of balance between the source and the, and the score music. Yeah, this is uh, something that we talk about a lot uh, and I struggle with, honestly, when it comes to soundtrack releases is, you know, understanding what it is that people want to hear and what plays effectively in the current way in which people digest music. And, uh, you know, to be totally honest, I, I never think about soundtrack releases when I'm working on a project. It's the last thing on my mind. Uh, I'm making music as best as I possibly can, I hope, for whatever it is I'm scoring. And that's without question the most important thing. And then sort of later, I have to come back to it and look at it as a whole and try to figure out the means by which it might best be presented as a soundtrack to be to stand on its own. And sometimes it just makes more sense to do an all-score release. Sometimes the score just doesn't have legs to stand as its own thing because it's just not the nature of what it was you were scoring. And so you, you're going to end up leaning more on the songs or, or not even put out a soundtrack at all, which often irks people. <laughs> but I think what's neat about the El Camino release is, as you say, the balance of score and source and what ultimately worked best, and I can't take any credit for this, I have to throw a lot of love and credit to Thomas Golovich, who's a music supervisor on on all of these Vince Gilligan projects and, and took so much time with it and with the artwork and, and all those things. The way it ended up playing out best was sequentially. Literally, the way in which the music falls in the film is almost exactly how it appears uh, on the record. And it just flowed that way naturally. And we were able to do that, I think, on this film in a way that we can't always do on the series releases, for example, because it was one concentrated story arc that followed one character, which the film does, but of course you can't do on a TV show. TV shows have all kinds of interlacing stories that are jumping back and forth. And by their very nature, you're following lots of threads at the same time. Whereas El Camino really is just one linear great story. And therefore, when I wrote the music, I wrote it sequentially. I started at the beginning, and the last thing I wrote was the last cue. 
which is not always the case. And it just felt like that worked best. And also what's great in the film is that, again, for the same reasons, because it's a linear storyline, I had more opportunities in El Camino to have longer moments where we were focused on one specific action. And so there's a cohesiveness, I think, about the score. And it fell nicely to this listening experience, I hope, on vinyl. The great aspect for me, uh, and not to sound old, but to be able to experience it on the vinyl uh, sequentially and in order and not all jumbled up like you might be presented to you on a Spotify or other streaming service, there is an intention there. And there, there is uh, a reason that we've done that. And hopefully those who are able to listen to it on the vinyl in that way will benefit from that. The other thing that occurred to me was that there's a balance between the source and score music on the El Camino soundtrack that mirrors the tonal balance of Breaking Bad. Score provides the tension and darkness of the crime world. Yes. And what's going on with Jesse as he's trying to navigate his exit. And then the source music pulls in the levity and the comic relief. And that balance in the show, I think, is what made it so successful to so many people because you're being pulled in these two directions and you need the relief of one. You know, I'm thinking of one example, the England Dan and John Ford Coley song, I'd Really Like to See You Tonight, is one. Hello, yeah, it's been a while, not much, how about you? Not sure why I called. I guess I really just wanted to talk to you. And I was thinking maybe later on we could get together. It's a really funny song when you when you when you listen to the lyrics and go back to that very saccharine time of kind of pop R and B soul sure. music that was happening. Yeah. You know, and then the very next track, if I'm not mistaken is underpass i could be wrong about that but I think that's right then you're diving right into jesse's predicament again mm -hmm. it reflects his isolation after he escapes he's hiding in plain sight and all alone and there's your cue to bring that that tension back in I think that's that's very well said and, and very true, and and is emblematic of how we would have done it on Breaking Bad. You know, the the source music, and it's not all levity. Obviously, there's serious moments of source music too. But but source music has that ability, right, to transport a moment outside uh, into a bigger picture or uh, a whole other direction that may be very unexpected and very welcome. And the score is is definitely on message, I hope. The goal of it is certainly to be on message. And, you know, the truth is the, the, these stories are dark. Yeah. They're incomprehensibly dark, for example. I mean, what 
Jesse's character goes through is, is, is totally incomprehensible to most people. I mean, it could how could you ever imagine going through all that? And certainly those moments of escapism is what I, I would call it even more than levity, because it is sometimes levity, but sometimes it's just pure escapism to allow your brain to reset from the darkness uh, is the magic of Vince Gilligan, no doubt. And, and also, you know, we certainly have tried to complement those moments as much as we can through music. And again, a uh, shout out to, to Thomas, who's so amazing at finding those source pieces that to me are so thoughtful in the many, many layers through which they help tell the story. There's, there's always that gut feeling you hear when the source music comes on that may take you to a certain place. But what I've always been amazed about in, in re-watching old stuff uh, that we've done together is how much those source choices stand up on a third or fourth viewing. You, you feel you know, what you felt before, but you also reckon maybe you're hearing some snippet of lyric that passed you by that first time or something that, that is really uh, very apropos for the moment and the, and the bigger story. And, and he's always thinking about this stuff. He's, he's uh, uh, immensely talented at it. It's amazing his, his depth and breadth of knowledge about music that I'd never even heard before and how it fits right into this world. I wanted to call attention to another moment where there's that contrast between the dark and the light or the funny and the oppressively haunting. When Todd is driving <laughs> his cleaning lady to the desert <laughs> and you hear Sharing the Night Together by Dr. Hook. You're looking kind of lonely, girl. Would you like someone new to talk to? Oh yeah, alright I'm feeling kind of lonely too, if you don't mind Can I sit down here beside you? You know, Todd you? is one of these characters where as oh, yeah. twisted and screwed up as he is, he's really funny. I mean, here you have him driving out to the desert with a dead body in the back of his El Camino and Jesse, unfortunately, next to her, right. her. But he's singing along with this song and getting the truck that goes by him to try to honk. You know, he's doing the honk sign with his hand. And, and it's so funny that the truck doesn't honk either. It just <laughs> drives right by. Totally. <laughs> but, you know, you have this sappy 70s pop ballad in this really, what seems to be this really awful sequence and and that balance is i don't know that's i guess the magic of of thomas it is and magic going back to the magic of vince gilligan too to me because there is this ability in in the way he creates characters to find that relatableness to characters that are absolutely horrendous like and that's a walter white and and how good is jesse plemons i mean you know amazing at that and, and bringing that to life. But I think it starts with that ability that Vince has to write these characters that no matter how horrendous they behave, finds these little nuggets that could be all of us. That's right. Right? I mean, who hasn't gotten lost, you know, with the windows down and drumming your fingers out the window to some, you know, cheesy 70s thing that that uh, that you're just enjoying for the love of enjoying it. And 
and uh, and certainly, yeah, Thomas found the, the the perfect match there, and they obviously they they worked on that moment a long time, and and it, and the payoff is huge. It's such a huge payoff. It reminds you of this the state of mind of Todd that he's a sociopath. <laughs> I mean, yes. you know, he he has no remorse. He has no feeling of sorrow or any over anything that he's done or anything that he's doing nope. and he's able to just live free during all this killing and yeah. torturing it's just bizarre but hilarious lalo is another character yes this guy is seriously dangerous and yet every time you see him you're smiling <laughs> you're just somehow. so happy to see the guy yeah. even though he's yeah no it's so true yep uh it's the gift that keeps on giving I don't know if I can associate a, a source music piece that I identify with Lalo in that same way, but it's amazing. His good naturedness is something that is his surface demeanor. But as soon as he's hit in his home, mm -hmm. you see this look come over him and his eyes change. And there's an undercurrent of Lalo that is nothing but menace. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And that's so well shown in the in the, the previous season's finale of Better Call Saul, when you get to his home and his own staff and his own family uh, is both overjoyed to see him and, and simultaneously absolutely terrified that he's there, that's, right? Yeah, on, <laughs> on, on their toes, you know, don't, don't want to do anything wrong at all, yeah. Right, right, right. But, but Lalo's just, he's living his best Lalo life and trying to be a step ahead and... Uh, yeah, fantastic. I can't wait to see where that all leads us. Well, I never thought there could be another villain that could stand up to Gus. And then then Lalo's introduced and you're like, whoa, wait a minute. He's he's like my favorite character of the whole story. And, <laughs> and his villainy is masked by this, you know, kind of, you know, patting you on the shoulder and, and chuckling with you. I was very curious about that last scene where he's shuffling off with, I guess he got shot in the leg or something, mm -hmm. and his leg is dragging on the gravel, mm -hmm. and then the gravel turns into the last bit of music, if you will, yes. that closes it out. Was that a sound designer? Was that you taking that foot dragging and then making it the final piece of music you hear? No, actually, ultimately, that was our sound team. Uh, Nick Forshager and all the guys who uh, and gals who work so hard on our uh, our sound I, there we toyed with a lot of different options there as we often do there was a score option there might have even been a source piece option to, to end that moment and i think going without music again as again we often do you know i think we find that music in these shows is so much more effective at anticipating a moment than it is describing a moment that you're seeing. I guess like a great horror movie, right? I mean, it, the way that works the best is through the anticipation of what's going to happen more than the actual thing that happens. And I think that we found that many times in working on these Vince Gilligan projects. And, and here again, I think partly because we, as you just mentioned astutely, you know, we, we have a conflicted set of feelings and opinions about Lalo it was important to really hone in on the danger and the menace of that last moment and that it's it's uncolored and it's very visceral. It's very real. There's nothing that score could add that could elevate it more than just the simple bare truth of it. And so that little subtle trick 
And Vincent and these guys love love those moments, and I do too. You know, it makes me think of David Lynch and how he's always used music so wonderfully, but also sound without music and extrapolating that sound, for example, in this case of that, just his leg scraping along the gravel, taking the very realness of that and then very subtly taking it into the surreal by giving it a little more importance than it would have in real life is a powerful way to be subtle, but also give the moment something that it deserves, you know, being the climactic moment in a sense of that series. And of course, we want to do everything we can to get people excited about what's to come. And uh, I think it was, it was a great choice. Well, that's the thing about it. It's, it's only a few seconds, but it sets up what's to come so beautifully. The gravel starts to spiral into this kind of darkness of sound. And you know that some switch has been flipped in Lalo. He's on a mission now. And I think that that, that, that little sound warping down it signifies that so perfectly even though it's like four or five seconds it's amazing agreed yeah you know one of the the skills you have to have as a composer or anyone in any kind of collaborative creative environment is that ability to take yourself out of it and step back and say oh that is a better answer hmm that's a better, I mean, I would, you know, as, as a composer, you know, the ego in me would love to, you know, make a big statement there musically, but it was not the right answer for the show. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed part one of my conversation with composer Dave Porter. Part two is going to drop in a couple of days. Thanks for listening.